stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, imagine as a child, you know, you, you, and a lot of kids go through this. You're, you're told one day that you have to pack up and move. That can be very traumatic for kids. Not knowing where you're going, not knowing what it's going to be like there, not knowing if you're going to have any friends, being uh, uprooted from your school and your social circle. I mean, it's traumatic for any kid. But imagine being told very abruptly that we got to move and you can't tell anybody about it and you can't tell anybody why. In fact, we can't tell you why. And having that happen more than once, that would be very unnerving for a child. So that's kind of where our next story begins. A, A very unusual childhood spent on the run and then trying to piece that all together as an adult in a story that takes some very strange twists and turns. Are there mobsters involved? Is there mental illness involved? What's going on here? Well, that's the question that Pauline Dakin uh, had to confront. And I guess as, as a journalist, had some wherewithal in terms of uh, piecing all of this together and how to solve the mystery. Because this was what her childhood was like. And she was told as a young adult the truth or what her mother believed to be the truth, that they were essentially in witness protection. They were in hiding from very dangerous people. But as Pauline began to peel back the layers of the story, it didn't add up. Uh, So she's telling the story uh, in uh, a new book. It's called Run, Hide, Repeat, a memoir of a fugitive childhood. Pauline Dakin, former journalist, now assistant professor of the School of Journalism at University of King's College. Pauline, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Rob. Uh, it's been an interesting journey for you, obviously, uh, the story you tell in the book and just the, the process of writing the book and going out and, and talking about it. What, what's it been like to, first of all, to you know, share this story with the world, both in terms of sitting down and writing it and being out talking about it? Hmm. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, the, the process of writing it uh, was, in fact, one of the best things I've done for myself. Uh, you know, just putting a complex, uh, crazy story into a narrative structure really helps you figure out what the heck was going on and how do I really feel about that. And then the process of putting it out in the world has been, uh, you know, overwhelmingly positive, I would say. You know, essentially, you know, my story is one where I was told my whole life, you can't talk about this, you can't tell this, this is a secret. And so to take control of that and say, no, I am telling this and putting it out there uh, has been a very healthy and freeing thing for me. Right. I mean, it's it's interesting growing up in that, that you would become a journalist. Do you think there's a connection there to go from that world of you can't talk about this to to then becoming a person who's supposed to talk about things? Right. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? And and I'm not sure about that. I mean, I lo- I've always, even as a child, I loved to write. So I think I was looking for a career in which I could write. But I'll tell you, the interesting thing was when I became a, a health journalist. A, I was a medical reporter and covering scientific publications. And I think that relates maybe to what had gone on in my life and I developed a very strong need for evidence. And so I was covering all of these 
evidence-based stories, and that was somehow very satisfying to me. Yeah. So you, you, you grow up constantly on the run, on the move, and it's never really explained to you in, until once you're an adult, I, I suppose. So at, at what point then did you begin this kind of reconstruction process to kind of go back and, and try to understand what was real and what was really going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was 23 when I was first told the explanation for why my family had disappeared twice, you know, just kind of picked up and disappeared, not said goodbye to family or friends. And, you know, that had obviously been the great mystery of my life and my brother's life. And when I was 23, uh, I was told the reason was that we had been on the run from the mafia. And, you know, that was a pretty difficult thing to swallow. And the story got even more bizarre as it went along. Um, And so it was um, roughly five years later that I began to really kind of dig deeply into that story. And then not until, and then, you know, once I sort of came to my conclusions about it, as an adult, I just decided, well, you know, that was a really crazy childhood, but now you're going to move on, you're going to have a career, you're going to have a family, and you're just going to forget about it, and we're just going to move on here. But, you know, as you mature, I think um, that comes with some kind of a demand to make sense of things. And at some point, I realized I needed to go back and start thinking more deeply about that. All right. So the first time you were, uh, I think you were seven years old and you moved from Vancouver to Winnipeg. Yeah, that's right. And then, yeah, that was the time that uh, we were told we were going on vacation to the prairies and we just never went home. Um, and when my brother and I wanted to know, well, why, why would we do this? Uh, the answer was simply, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. When you're older, I'll be able to tell you. Uh, which is pretty unsatisfying, right? When yeah. you I've been ripped away from everything you know. And the second time that happened uh, was when I was um, in grade, just starting grade eight, so 13, which is a really tough time for, uh, you know, a girl to um, be socially disconnected from what she knows. Um, And that time, my mother did tell us we were going, we're going to be moving, but you can't tell anybody. And this was that whole kind of drumbeat of it's a secret, don't tell, don't talk about. Um, and and I almost didn't tell. I did tell my best friend at the time, and I swore her to secrecy, and, you know, we cried and, and so on. Uh, uh, but then off we went uh, and ended up on the East Coast in St. John, New Brunswick. Uh, so this was, the, the first movie was after your parents had, had separated, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. So this was your mother who was was kind of driving this all of this. Yes, in conjunction with a family that we had become quite close to. Uh, so when my mother uh, finally left an abusive marriage, uh, she ended up going to Al-Anon, the support group for families of alcoholics, and. There, she was recommended for counseling to a fellow uh, who was the local United Church minister. And she had very successful counseling with him. She, you know, got better. She, in fact, went to work in his church as a secretary for a while to get on her feet. Uh, But he and his wife became very close friends with our family, and we began, well, we started going to his church, and we were spending vacation time camping together, the two families. Um, And so the... The big part of the mystery was that every time we disappeared, 
they did too. So Stan and his wife, Sybil, um, the minister and his wife, they moved in lockstep with us, or we moved in lockstep with them across the country. So that was always a big part of the mystery. So as you begin to, to dig into this explanation that you were essentially in witness protection, you were on the run from the mafia, the, the, the story didn't, didn't add up, right? So it became apparent to you at some point that, that this wasn't the reason, that there was something else going on here. Yeah. I mean, I, I, a part of me had fully believed this because of who was telling me. So my right. mother uh, and Stan were, I think, my two biggest supporters and the people I most trusted in the world. But, you know, as we went along, uh, it became more and more bizarre. And, and I kept thinking, you know, could I, I knew my mother would not lie to me because, you know, one of her, you know, she always talked about the importance of honesty and trust in relationships. And I just knew she wouldn't lie. So I began to think, is there something wrong with Stan? But he had no, there was no indication of mental illness or psychosis or schizophrenia or anything. And so I just, you know, what could be going on here? Um and eventually, I just needed to know one way or the other, because I was always in this kind of mental war with myself. Was it true? Wasn't it true? And I would add up all of the evidence on one side and all the evidence on the other and never come out with what I thought was the, the definitive answer about was this story true. So I tested it uh, by telling my mother, knowing that she was gonna, would tell Stan, uh, that somebody had broken into my house. And then the story came back in response to that, yes, we've discovered that people had been following you. They've been, we found your picture in their car. They've been following you for time. They were breaking in looking for certain things. And, of course, as soon as that happened, I knew it, was, it, was, it wasn't true. There had been no break-in. I made it up. So, you know, it was a, a really devastating moment to realize that, you know, all of this craziness had just been some kind of strange hoax. What's interesting is they it, they both seem to believe it, maybe for different reasons, but it's not as though they were intentionally lying to you. No, that's right. And, you know, I won't go into, I won't give everything away, but, uh, but I will say that, you know, as a little bit later as an adult, I, I made an important discovery. And, and I think you put it really well. They each truly believed that this was going on, each for different reasons. Uh, my mother fully uh, trusted and, and had huge regard for Stan and would, could not believe that he would do anything to harm us or to trick us. Um, but Stan had a whole other thing going on, and and he also... Uh, did not intend to harm or trick us, but I think that that was out of his control. And I think part of this for you then is not just understanding why your childhood was as it was, but I suppose then reconciling what you know with, with how you perceive these people. And is is it for you? Is it a journey of forgiveness? Is there is there anger? Is there resentment? I mean, how do you grapple with all of those emotions? Yeah, for many years, I felt incredibly angry and resentful, and I hated Stan, who had been like a dad to me. Uh, and so, yes, this discovery I made, discovery I made uh, about this very rare um, condition uh, that was driving all of this really allowed me to put that down. I didn't have to carry around that anger and resentment. It allowed me to see that there was no intention 
to uh, to perpetrate a hoax of any kind. Um, and so I have to say, my, I, I am able now to look back at Stan um, and not be angry. I would say the forgiveness I feel for Stan is there, but it's not as fulsome as the forgiveness I feel for my mother, who uh, I have discovered for um, many reasons was kind of uniquely vulnerable to somebody like Stan, who was a very gentle, principled guy. He was the United Church minister and, you know, the man who she credited with really saving her life when she was in the depths of despair over this abusive relationship. Well, it's a fascinating story. The book is called Run, Hide, Repeat, a memoir of a fugitive childhood. Pauline, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate your interest. All right. Pauline Dakin, uh, the University of King's College in Halifax. Uh, her book, Run, Hide, Repeat, a memoir of a fugitive childhood. Quite a wild story. 974-8255 is a number. Back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.